0: Well, we are now in session six, the providence of God. And just like all the sessions that come before this, uh, I'll be I'll be drawing in some categories that we've built foundations on to try to cover this doctrine in the limited time that I have. I borrowed this book from Josh's bookshelf, but this is a book that Piper wrote on the doctrine of providence. And it's roughly 800 pages, I think, almost 800 pages. Um, so... Obviously, I'm not going to cover this. It's not possible. So if you're like, this is a short session and I wish there was more that we talked about, here's a good reference for you. Uh, So there's that. But I will try to, in 20 minutes, get through the doctrine of providence and deal with some of the major considerations as Christians we have to deal with when we're thinking about providence. So you'll notice on your sheet, I gave you a couple of terms there. You might ask yourself the question, what does this have to do with the doctrine of providence? but it has everything to do with the doctrine of providence, particularly as we think about the problem of evil as Christians relate to uh, a lot of skeptics in the world who I think have good reasons to be skeptical and we should have good questions or or good answers to the questions that they're asking. Um, So what is providence? Providence is the doctrine of God that speaks, speaks to his sovereignty over all things that happen in the world. The providence of God means that when the two planes are crashing into the towers in 9-11, that God was sovereign over that happening. The providence of God means that when Israel was being slaughtered and exiled into Babylon, that God was sovereign over that happening. It means when a new child enters the world and is born, God was sovereign over that occurring as well. And when you get a job promotion or you get fired from your job, God knows and was sovereign over that as well. The doctrine of providence essentially is how God interacts with the world as we experience it. So it draws from these other doctrines, like he needs to be apart from the world in order to be sovereign over it. Uh, But also he needs to relate to the world in order to be providentially in it, right? He he needs to actually interact with the world. He's not uh, setting the world into motion at the start of time and kind of letting things run its course. Providence also tells us that God intervenes and intercedes into human activity. You can look no further than Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abram out of the land of Ur and says, I have made for you a people and a nation, and I will bless you and make you fruitful. And that is God pulling Abram out of his condition and sovereignly calling him to a life of obedience. And he will work in his providence to bless Abram in that. And God's providence is unthwartable. It's, it, you can't overthrow God's activity in his providence. Now, this is uh, famously by Piper, illustrated in the story of Joseph, where at the conclusion of all of the slavery he's experienced, the years of imprisonment, the betrayal, the false accusation by Potiphar's wife, the, uh, the imprisonment again, he, he's had quite a life. And at the end of that life, he meets his brothers, and his father passes away, and his brothers think, Joseph's gonna take revenge upon us because we fought, we've got it coming. We, you know, he, we, really, we really do have it coming. So they go to Joseph and they basically say, hey, please have mercy on us. And Joseph essentially says to them, the things you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now that illustrates the doctrine of providence because what Joseph is saying is the, the wicked things which happens to, that happened to him mediated by his brothers in the world were simultaneously mediated by God for protection, for salvation, for his promotion, and for his edification in the world, it's the it's the doctrine by which Paul can say not one bit of suffering in this world is 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 meaningless. He Paul can say, uh, for I do not even compare the sufferings of this world to be compared with the eternal weight of glory, because of providence. Because God's providence is unthwartable. It's, it, you can't overthrow His sovereignty in the world. Now that does have problems it poses and questions, which I'm going to get to. But in order to understand providence, we have to understand uh, these ideas of human freedom as it relates to God's sovereignty. One of the things that is often thought about when it comes to God's providence is that humans are simply cogs in a, in a wheel that's spinning. We are we are willless. We don't really have any kind of meaningful choices that we make. This is a false belief called determinism. And there are christians historically who have articulated beliefs like determinism but determinism basically says everything that you experience and do in your life is predetermined actually many uh, secular psychologists freud and others would say the decisions you make in your life are kind of ingrained into you early on in adolescence and you really have no autonomy over yourself to choose meaningfully anything in the world you are who you are by circumstance by situation and if you're a christian you would say and by god's willing it to be so But that's a false belief because scripture speaks all over the place about the fact that humans make meaningful choices in the world and we relate to the world in meaningful ways. So that such that Christians can be praised for making right choices and punished for making wrong choices, right? Determinism uh, removes human autonomy or human will at all. The second idea uh, seems to overcome this problem of determinism. It's called libertarian free will. And as it relates to God's sovereignty, it says, God is sovereign, yes, over everything except human ability to choose. So humans are free, unbound by God in any way, and thus humans are truly free, such such that we can make meaningful choices. Such that when God's will bumps into human will, the triumphal will is the human will. The human will is free, even free from God himself. The problem with that is that means humans not god are sovereign. If two wills bump into each other and one will triumphs, it is the triumphing will which is sovereign over the defeated will. And this does not happen because in scripture we hear all the time about saints who praise God, such as Saul, who praises God for his conversion to Christianity, and Saul was not let's say a willing participant in that event. He was the on the receiving end of God's will to save. He was not volitionally looking for salvation. He wanted to kill Christians. He wanted to punish them and he wanted to put them in prison. And God says, actually, I'm gonna save him and I will do so, I will save him. This is the same kind of thing that you see in the Gospel of John with the character uh, Nicodemus who comes to Jesus by night, rebellious and not accepting the truth of Jesus Later, we see him in John's Gospel about the middle of the book. He's starting to ask questions about how the Pharisees are getting to their conclusions. And by the end of the book, he identifies with Jesus in his death. Nicodemus moves over the course of that book by God's will unto a state of sensitivity and conversion and faith. So when God interacts with creatures, it is creatures who change, not God. It is creatures' will that surrenders, not God's will. Now, as Christians, we practice this all the time. We pray for God to change people's hearts. Right, we, we, we ask for God to give people wisdom, but we ask for God to give us changed hearts such that we would desire rightly things that we don't currently desire. We are asking God to change our wills. So libertarian free will doesn't rightly accomplish, let's say, the divine picture of human freedom. The choice then that is left to us is a choice that's called compatibilism. It is kind of this quasi-step in between determinism And libertarian free will. So what Compatibilism says is that as God is sovereign over the world in his providence, humans make meaningful choices in the world that they can be held accountable for and that they can be punished for or rewarded for, and also that God wills all things which come to pass. So in, for example, I mentioned 9-11, when those pilots crashed planes into the World Trade Towers and those buildings collapsed, Those pilots made meaningful and willful decisions, which we could rightly say was wicked and wrong and deserving of punishment. And at the same time, we won't go away and say, and God was out of control of that whole situation. We will say, and God also willed those things to come to pass according to the counsel of his will for his own glory, for his own purposes. People make meaningful choices. God is still sovereign over their meaningful choices. What compatibilism says is that human choices and God's choices don't interact in a competitive way, but in a symbiotic way, such that humans choose and God chooses, and they're not competing with one another for the same kind of territory. So this is how uh, historically Christians have tried to put together the doctrine of God's sovereignty over human responsibility and human freedom. And what we're wrestling with often is not just the reality that God wills things into existence, but we're, we're wrestling with a twin danger. Danger one is to say that God is out of control of the things that happen in the world. And danger two is to say that God is culpable for the sin which happens in the world. So the first danger is to say that God is out of control. This would be if Joseph were to re- respond to his brothers at the end of that whole narrative and say, what you meant for evil, God eventually worked that thing out. But he doesn't say that. He says, from the moment you meant it for evil, God was also meaning that thing for good. A more famous example, one of my favorite examples, and I've cited this probably a dozen times if you've ever talked to me about this, is Acts, where Peter gives the speech about the crucifixion, and he says, what you, according to human, uh, human will, crucified the Son of God was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Jesus' crucifixion, the ultimate act of human wickedness, was also superintended by God's divine will such that God is sovereign and in control over all those things happening, and yet the humans are culpable and responsible for the wicked choices they made to crucify his sinless son. Providence is existing in those texts. The other danger, so we're gonna say God is totally in control of all things that happen in the world, good and evil, all of it. He's not out of control of a morsel that happens in this world. But the other danger we run into is the danger of making God culpable for human sin. So we can't press the doctrine of providence to say, therefore, God is the causal agent for sin. Meaning when a human sins, it's really because God's behind them puppeteering and possessing them to make them to sin. As James would say, God tempts no man to sin. God does not coerce people into their sinfulness. God is sovereign over human choices, but he is not complicit in human wickedness and human sinfulness. So how then do these things interact? Well, we might say it this way. One one of the ways is that God stands behind human good choices and human bad choices. We might say God stands behind righteous decisions and sinful decisions in an asymmetrical way. So he, he stands behind both of them, but asymmetrically. Behind the right choices, he stands causally behind them to will them into existence, to turn hearts towards him, to cause them to be obedient, to cause them to act righteously. And behind wicked decisions, he stands behind them, permitting them to occur. Uh, This is most evidently seen in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, where Pharaoh willfully hardens his own heart and God never intercedes to stop that process. God simply gives Pharaoh over to his hardness. So God stands behind that decision, sovereign over that decision, and yet asymmetrically behind it, such that he is not actively hardening Pharaoh's heart and therefore causing Pharaoh to sin. He's simply giving Pharaoh over to his sin. He's not interceding into Pharaoh's pattern of sin. That is unlike how God stands behind Saul when Saul is actively persecuting Christians willing to kill them. And instead of giving Saul over to his sin, God sovereignly redeems him from his sin and saves him. So God stands behind both those decisions, but asymmetrically, actively in the one case and permissively in the other case. This is how providence works out in human uh, activity. And that leads us to the question of the problem of evil. And this is possibly the most potent uh, claim against, crea- uh, against Christians uh, that, that apologists and Christian, Christian testimony has to wrestle with. If you want to be a faithful witness in the world today to unbelievers, to friends who are wrestling with Christianity, or even to yourself in moments of darkness and to your fellow Christians, you have to have a good answer for the problem of evil most famously, a scholar named Bart Erdman, started uh, as a professing believer when he started his journey of New Testament studies, over time became an agnostic as a practicing professor, and ultimately is now an atheist saying that he believes in no God. And the causal decision that moved him along that path, ultimately to denying the existence of God, was the problem of evil. He could not reconcile all of the wickedness which happens in the world and say that God is somehow sovereign over it in the way that the scriptures speak about him being sovereign. Therefore, God is not good or God is not powerful, but he cannot be both of those things at the same time. It's the age-old question of how does God, how is God powerful and loving and good and all those things in the same degree? So how do we put these pieces together? At the end of the day, the problem of evil comes down to this, this issue. If the problem of evil is used as a means to reject God, meaning someone says, because God is wicked in allowing evil to exist, therefore I reject God. The problem is that is simultaneously borrowing from the biblical worldview and cutting it off at the same time. One cannot define evil apart from God telling us it's wicked. So to take God's definitions of good and evil and to say, therefore I reject the God who gives these definitions, is to misunderstand God because God actually says all his activities taken in the scope of eternity and according to his divine mind actually work out perfectly for glory, for providence, for all things to work out in the end. We might think about it this way. Think about the the barrenness that Hannah experiences in 1 Samuel and how at a certain point in her life, she might have legitimately asked the question, how could God be good and allow me to experience this? And yet, when all things are considered, she can praise God for his faithfulness to her, for actually giving her a child but that is only worked out over the course of time of which humans are in the process of experiencing, and God, who is immutable, has overseen all of it through to the end. We might say it a different way. How could God be right and good over Stephen being stoned to death for holding fast to the testimony which he held fast to? Except that God vindicates Stephen by accepting him into his heavenly abode and honoring him as a faithful saint, promising riches and rewards for him who endured to the end. So providence and suffering and evil are only possible to understand in light of who God is and what he is like. No one can reject God for being wicked because to do so requires you borrow from God to say what wickedness is or isn't. Secondly, everything that we cannot resolve on this side of eternity doesn't prove that God is wicked or wrong or not good, but it proves what we've been saying this whole time as we've been talking about God, which is that we are creatures and he is the creator. There are certain things which on this side of eternity, we will never understand exhaustively. And here's the question from the garden, will we trust God anyway, even if we don't have exhaustive understanding of why he does what he does? Eve concludes, if I don't know why God forbids me from eating of this tree, I must eat of the tree to see what's on the other side we have the same kind of choice mediated to us day by day by the problem of evil to say, if I can't exhaustively understand how God is working in this situation or that situation or how he's moving in this circumstance, I might reject him because he can't be good if this is happening. But to do so is to fail to trust in the goodness of God, to fail to trust in the patience of God, to fail to trust in the immutability of God, the sovereignty of God and the sufficiency of God, who has first mediated to us what goodness is like shown to us countless examples of how, over the course of thousands of years, he's been faithful to his people, even at moments where it looked like they were at their lowest. And then we live in our you know, 80 years of life, 90 years of life, and we question God's goodness throughout that experience. And we realize how, how flimsy we are in that kind of questioning. Consider the, uh, Jeremiah, who sees Israel at its pinnacle worst, exiled to Babylon, the city destroyed, the temple destroyed, everything gone, the holy line cut off, the kings cut off. And Jeremiah writes a letter to the uh, the Israelites in exile, says, God's plan for you is a good one and he will see you through to the end. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah does not lose faithfulness at Israel's lowest point. And, And any Israelite looking at that situation from Jeremiah's point of view alone and not from God's sovereignty would conclude things like, God can't be powerful to let this have happened to us, or God can't be good to allow this to happen to us. The Babylonians destroyed the Israelites, committing all kinds of atrocities against them. And yet, Jeremiah was found true when Christ comes to redeem his people unto himself and to give them a better land, a better promise, a better hope, and a better kingdom. So who's right in the end? Jeremiah, but only in the analysis of hundreds of more years of history to pass. And this is where providence is really strong in our lives. We have to recognize we exist temporally as creatures for a finite period of time with fleeting interactions with our creation around us and the world in which we partake. Those are not reasons, valid reasons, to reject God's self-revelation from all time that he is faithful and good and wise and loving to us. The evidence just doesn't square to go up against God's providence. So as Christians, when we wrestle with the problem of evil, we have to simultaneously recognize that the problem of evil is something that Christians must deal with in the world as we relate to people who have serious questions about the Christian faith. But it's not the kind of thing that actually questions God in any substantial way. Because the solution to the problem of evil is to know God's character. The solution to the problem of evil is to show people from the scriptures who God is and what he is like and how in all things he is powerful and good and merciful. The solution is not to reject people who actually ask those questions and say, well, that's a foolish kind of question. It's a good question to ask when experiencing sin in the world. So the problem of evil is something we have to be able to engage with. And even as you relate to yourself in the world and as you will experience suffering, you need to know that the problem of evil is not something that actually threatens God in any meaningful way. God is still good, he's still faithful, and he's still righteous, even though sin exists in our world. So with that, let me close our time in prayer, and then we can move on to some questions. Father we thank you for this time together tonight to gather and to study your word to study your truth to study you to see you more clearly as more lovely and Lord as more intimate and relational to us than we ever could understand Lord we thank you that you have been pleased to reveal yourself to us in your word and that that revelation is glorious and magnificent and it wells our hearts to worship you in the end We ask, even as we continue tonight in our fellowship and our discussion, that you be gracious to us to enliven our hearts, to see these truths boldly and clearly in our lives and on the pages of the text. And we would learn to not only know them about you, but to to love them about you and to see you as majestic and, and holy because of all these truths. We pray this in your name. Amen.